Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Mark Hirschberg on the RiderFlex podcast. Am I saying your last name correctly, Mark? I'm, I'm assuming I am. Yep, you got it. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. I love your background. I like that. I like that. I got the book there. I, you know, it's just, it's nice. You got the lighting, the audio is good. I love it when people are ready for the podcast, you know, that's nice. <laughs> when you're an author, you have to go do the tour and it's a virtual tour these days. And that means investing in your setup and getting the background, getting all the lighting, getting the audio, because there's little things. It's like writing a book and then having poor production quality, a bad cover, typos the content might be good but no one wants to read it and so same thing here if i was in shadow if the audio is terrible even though i have good ideas no one would want to hear it completely agree for all you listeners out there that want to be on the show or start your own podcast heed mark's advice because it really does matter and by the way it doesn't cost a lot of money to get set up i mean it really isn't that expensive to just get a little lighting and a mic it's not it's not like you got to spend ten thousand dollars to have a studio in your house a hundred dollars for a decent condenser mic and then just a light that that shines on you you're good hundred dollars that's all it takes and then of course if you're like me i sneak into my wife's vanity touch up any little (laughs) marks and stuff you know don't tell anybody i said that (laughs) Uh, mark tell us about yourself before we get into business before we get into the book i want to know about you the person, give me some early life stuff, family, mom, dad, siblings, where you grew up, if you don't mind, go for it. I've got two wonderful parents and a great brother. We grew up outside of New York and Chicago, so mostly suburban environments, although I did live in Boston back in college and post-college for a while, and I come from just a wonderful, loving family. My parents were great at encouraging education, and I grew up a classic 80s nerd. Really? A straight-A student? Nearly straight-A student. I was into math, science, chess, Star Trek. If there was an activity you associate with nerds in the 80s, I probably did. Is that why the chess pieces are behind you? Is that what that is? I'm, I'm assuming? It is. I, I was a competitive chess player. and Really? Ooh. Yeah, so that was a big part of my life. I used to go to chess camp. So chess will always be meaningful in my life. Very good. Uh, speaking of Star Trek, have you tried to watch the new Picard episode on Paramount Plus? Have you tried it? I have enough streaming services at the moment, so I have not yet gotten <laughs> Paramount Plus. At some point, I will say, okay, it's time to go binge all the Star Trek on Paramount Plus. So I'm a little behind the newer episodes. Okay, so let's just take a pause right there. First of all, isn't that annoying as hell? <clears throat> I see this because uh, my wife and I, we, we're not huge TV people, but usually we'll, we'll, you know, after dinner, if we're just trying to decompress, maybe we'll sit down for 30, 45 minutes and just, just chill for a minute, right? Maybe looking for something to watch. And it's always either Netflix or Amazon. Anyway, I heard, I was a Star Trek guy. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I was a Star Trek fan. And uh, I saw something, you know, where, they had Picard or they were doing a new series where it was about Picard. And I thought, okay, well, so I'm trying to find it right on Netflix or Amazon. And then my wife's like, no, it's only on this Paramount plus, And then we have to buy it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Same thing. I answered just like you. I'm like, I don't want, we don't need another streaming service. And so anyway, somehow we signed up for the trial or whatever. My point of all of this is <sighs> wasn't that good. Mark, I, didn't, I watched, it's not that good. <laughs> I can hold off on getting that one. Yeah, but I am a Star Trek guy. Okay, so no sports then, but your activities were were learning, chess, things like that? 
No in sports growing up. I was a competitive ballroom dancer throughout my 20s. I what? traveled the country. I went to national championships for a number of years. I was one of the no. top dancers in the country. Are you serious? <laughs> serious. Oh, wow. So you can do it all, huh? Everything. Waltz, swing, whatever. I mean, you, just, you name it. All the... I am one of the rare dancers. Most people on the competitive ballroom circuit, they will dance five or 10 dances. There's four styles. Most have five dances. One has four. So most people focus on one or two styles, five or 10 dances. I said, if I'm getting on a plane, if I'm spending the weekend in the city, I want to spend as much time as possible on the floor. So I competed in all four styles, 19 different dances. And I loved it. I loved being out on the floor. So, wow. When you were a young man, then you're winning chess tournaments you're winning dance tournaments that that was your thing yeah chess tournaments i didn't win as many as i would have liked but dancing i did extremely well why do you, do you still dance now i unfortunately i don't compete anymore i retired from it a number of years ago so I'll just socially dance once in a while when there's not a global pandemic going on <laughs> if you go to like a dinner party and people are dancing you probably look out on the floor and go okay that guy doesn't know what he's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing. They don't know what they're doing. And then you get out there and everybody's like, holy shit, look at this guy. He's good. <laughs> it's challenging at weddings for two reasons. One, the dance floor is way too crowded. So I'm like, oh, Mark, you dance, go on the dance floor. Well, there's no, there's no room to dance because everyone on the dance floor is just packed in. And in ballroom dancing, we need room to move. But also I'm always hesitant you don't want to show up the bride on her wedding day. So I don't want to make too much of a scene. Like, no, we want to dance. Yeah, but let's let's focus on the bride. <laughs> right. I can see that. I can see that. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's go back to high school. Uh, did you get a scholar? You went to MIT, right? I'm pretty sure. I did. Yeah. Did you get a scholarship to go? Uh, I had some tiny scholarships I won from some competitions, but... No, had to had to pay most of that very large tuition. Oh man, but getting into MIT, congratulations! I mean, what a great school. Okay, uh, and you got your master's from there too. Also did my master's there in cryptography. Okay, in physics, and then master's in cryptography. Right? I mean, wow. Okay, so yes, yeah, super smart guy. Did you know what you wanted to do with all this? Did you have a plan? I had some ideas early on. I originally wanted to get a PhD in physics. But there were two things holding me back. One, physics was a declining field at the time. It was the end of the Cold War. Funding was going down. I see. And two, I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. And my advisor, I was not a great student at MIT. I didn't apply myself. I didn't do a lot of studying. I, really? Yeah, I really should have worked much harder than I did. Was that because in high school, was that because in high school you were kind of the straight A guy, but then when you got to college, you started cutting loose and partying a little bit? What happened? It, it's exactly that. I didn't have the study habits. In high school, I didn't have to study. I could just read the book once, hear the class, done. I could crank out that term paper the night before. Mm. MIT, the standards are quite a bit higher and that doesn't quite work. And so <laughs> I really got my ass kicked freshman year. I buckled down, I got a little better, but I was not really the level I should have been at. And so my advisor said to me, when I told him I want to do theoretical physics, he said, well, you know, the problem with theoretical physics is there's about a hundred people in the world who lead and everyone else just follows. Mm. And that was his hint of, you ain't one of those top hundred. <laughs> so, okay, I, I got the hint. And I, I said, well, I also like computer science. I was interested in politics until I spent some time volunteering in politics. That I lost. <laughs> so when I came out of MIT, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Now, at the time, a lot of people went into big tech, which big tech back then was Microsoft and IBM. Right. I didn't want to do that. Yeah, because this is 97. This is 97. You get your master's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is the dot-com era was just taking off. So I said, oh, I don't want to do these big, big companies. A lot of people went to Wall Street, didn't want to do Wall Street. A lot of people did consulting, didn't want to do consulting. So I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And I wound up at a startup basically by process of elimination saying, well, I, I guess I'll do this job because I don't know what else I want to do. But it turned out to be the right path for me. 
let me ask, was your dad or mom, were they like physics, MIT gra- graduates? What, what, I just want to make sure I understand the family history or were you like the first one to go to a, a huge school? But give me some history there. Yeah, my, my parents are, are very well educated. My father is a retired physician, so he went on to med school. My okay. mother has a master's degree in early childhood education. So they okay. both have graduate degrees. Okay. Uh, my right. college was basically preordained from my birth. Right. Your brother too, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So I wanted to make sure I knew that. Where are they still alive? They still well? Are they? They are doing well. I get to see them regularly. They live a couple miles from me here in oh. New York City. Oh, very good. Well, that's handy. Are you married? Kids? Partner? Anything? What's your What's your social status? Fortunately, still single. Hopefully okay. that will change, but yeah, at the moment still single. Did you get anybody special in your life at all? Any relationships? I'm working on it. You're wor- <laughs> you don't want to share? You don't want to give us any details? Early. It's no, early. We'll wait till <laughs> we'll wait till something big and then I can then I can say okay. something. Is your brother, does your brother have kids? My, my, where I'm getting where I'm going then is do your parents have any grandchildren yet? They do. I've got uh, two nibblings. My brother has two kids and I just got to see them the other week for their 10th birthday. So that was fantastic. Okay. Very good. All right. And, they, and, and your parents live close, which is pretty cool. All right. And where are you in New York right now? Whereabouts? I'm right in, right in Midtown. Right in Midtown. Holy, we're going to come back. To, we're going to come back to your career, but I just got to ask you a couple of questions. Living in Midtown over the last two years, by the way, we're recording this on April 5th, 2022. Living in Midtown, New York, the last two years, has it just sucked with the whole, with COVID? Is they all of it just, has it just sucked, Mark? <laughs> it, it did because the, in New York, you make a trade-off. You get small space, but everything's nearby. You can go see the theater. You can go out with your friends, lots of activities. Mm-hmm. And of course, we gave up those activities. We stayed with high rent, small space. Even when I think back to the early days, think to March and April of 2020, when we didn't even know how this worked, yeah. going out on the street was, was scary because in the suburbs, you walk on the street, you don't see anyone. It's the suburbs or there's one person down the block, you wave. In New right. York, I walk out of my building, I pass a dozen people to get to the end of the block. It's right. like, uh, you know, what happened? I just walking by someone for a second, I just get exposed. What am I doing? So it, it was quite a, a scary time. Even laundry. What most people don't know in New York City, most of us don't have laundry in unit. Right. I want to get laundry in my building. I at least have that. But I remember thinking I'd go downstairs to do laundry. Am I taking my life in my hands? Well, I'd sit there and wipe down the machines because we didn't we didn't know back then exactly how it was being right. being very cautious. The numbers in New York was going through the roof. So it was it was very nerve wracking those early couple of weeks. Jeez, you know I we, I live in Colorado, which is such a lot more open space, obviously, and I actually live somewhat close to the Wyoming border, so uh, completely different planet from where you're at. <laughs> uh, wow, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, wanted to have lived in New York during that during that time, but. That said, I do I do like New York. I've been to New York several times. Love going. It's a fascinating place. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to live there full time, but I get it. I get it. So, but do you, do you enjoy? Is is it? Are things opening up? I mean, is is the city somewhat back to normal now? Is can you go to shows? It's back to normal. You can go to shows. Shows still require, I believe, masks. They require vaccination. I see. There, there, there's some changes. The big thing for me is it doesn't feel like we're 100% back. And so it's little things. For example, there are two bagel places near me. One used to be open 24 hours. The mm-hmm. other was open, used to be until nine. Now okay. both of them close at either six or seven. And this seems really minor. And you might think <laughs> who needs a bagel at three in the morning? <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. But those little things that New York, the city that never sleeps, why are these mm. places closed at seven o'clock? It just doesn't feel the same. Mm. Even mm. last fall, there were bars that it's midnight and they're closing down on a Saturday night. That never used to happen. 
So it's not 100% yet. We might go down a rabbit hole here for a second, but let's go ahead and do it. Is that because uh, is that because of the labor shortage? You can't find enough people or because the businesses realized during the pandemic that they could be as profitable with different operating hours and it's just more handy or both? I suspect it's probably more of the latter. I'm okay. sure there's some of the former as well, because, yeah, you were open at three in the morning, but you certainly weren't doing peak business at three in the morning. And so I might have said, yeah, this is just not, not worth it. Gotcha. I do think that's it. You know, I hear, I hear, you know, Rider Flex, our day job here at Rider Flex is we, we're a recruiting firm, right? So we, that's what we do for a living is place candidates. And you wrote a book about career advice. And so we both have lots of uh, experience around the topic. I, I hear people say, oh, the reason this place has different hours now is because they can't find help or it's a labor shortage. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know. In some cases, I think what happened was they were forced into a different environment. They were forced into a different pattern and they realized, wow, actually this pattern is more handy or this time frame is more handy or it's just as profitable or whatever. And, and now they've kind of kept it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's only because uh, they can't find enough people. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, in Massachusetts, um, oh. liquor sales were banned on Sunday with blue laws. And when they're looking to expand it, now customers want that. Customers, oh yeah, I want to go to the to the liquor store on Sunday and pick up some alcohol that I didn't think about. The mm -hmm. stores actually didn't want that because most people said, yeah, they they figured out. Most people know to plan, and we're not suddenly. It's not that people are going to drink one six more, right? But now our labor costs <laughs> go up by one six. Bingo. So, we, they actually opposed it, except for the ones on the border who were competing with other states that were open on Sunday. Oh, right. right. See, it all comes down to the math right there. It just all comes down to the profit and the math. Okay, very good. Appreciate you sharing some of that uh, stuff with me. Okay, so you uh, let's go back to the career. So you, somehow you land in a startup. Did you know somebody? Did you have a friend from school? Somebody called you and they're like, hey, Mark, come, how did you even get there? It was just at MIT, lots of companies come in to recruit, and big okay. companies, small companies, and they came okay. to MIT to recruit, and that's how I met them. Ah, gotcha. All right. Walk us through your career a little bit. You, I mean, you've done so many things. We're not going to have time to touch on every, every one of them, but walk us through kind of a career overview, if you don't mind, a little bit up, up to what you're doing now with the consulting. Yeah, go ahead. So there's, there's a lot that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I have parallel career, though, I'll explain in a moment. Okay. On the startup side, I began as a software engineer at the startup. I moved from one startup to the next, typically moving up. I've done a number of traditional startups that include different types of marketplaces. So building different systems, labor marketplaces, lead marketplaces, data marketplaces. I've done cybersecurity. I've done media. I've done ad tech. Mm. I've done all these different industries I've worked across. So those have all been classic startups. Now, sometimes I've helped Fortune 500 companies play startup. At Sears, at NBC, they brought me in both because I had bring in new technology, but also that startup DNA. You yep. know how to innovate and we need to learn that. So I've helped some innovation within big companies. I've done some consulting and fractional CTO work. So sometimes I'm a CTPO, Chief Technology Product Officer, but sometimes I go in just for a few months to cover, or I'll go in part-time at a couple of different companies because they don't need a full-time CTO or CTPO, but they need some leadership there while they're working on projects. So I've done a lot of different versions of this. Now, as I've been doing this early in my career, when I realized I wanted to become a CTO, I realized there were skills I needed that I was never taught. It's not just about being the best engineer, but leadership, team building, hiring, all these skills. No one ever taught them to me, but I needed that if I want to be a CTO. So I had to develop those skills on my own. And as I was doing so, I realized these skills are not just for executives. They are for everyone. Founders, employees, all of us need to know this. And I began to upskill my team, realizing this will make them more effective. As I was doing this, it led to this parallel career because MIT had been surveying companies and heard these are the same skills they're looking for. And this is not unique to MIT. Other surveys by other schools 
have found these are the skills and not just for college hires, for everyone, these are the skills companies want to see. Leadership, communication, team building, networking, negotiating, but we don't teach people. So when I heard MIT was looking to address this, I reached out, I said, I've been training up my team. I'm happy to share my content. Great. And our thought would be a one-off meeting wound up. They said, well, why don't you help us develop some of the material? And then they asked me to help teach it. So in parallel to my career doing startups, I've been teaching at MIT and elsewhere for 20 some years wow. and turned that into the speaking and the book that brought me here. Fascinating well-rounded career. I love it when, especially as an executive recruiter for my day job, I love it when I'm talking to an executive that can say, hey, I've worked for Fortune 500. Hey, I've worked for startup and seen both sides and dealt with it. Because uh, as, as you know, uh, it, it is very difficult to go from one to the other if you haven't, or at least the, the first jump across the bridge is always a little bit scary, right? Um, especially for people that have worked for fortune 500 their whole life. And then all of a sudden they go to a startup and their head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. One of the things I did during the great recession, not the great resignation today, but great recession years ago, I was involved with a program that New York city ran the economic development council in which they said, people are losing their jobs and they're not coming back. This is not a normal recession where when it gets better, they'll hire them back. We knew there were shifts and jobs were going away. So they wanted to fund, how do we transition people from where the jobs were, big mm. companies, to where they are, small companies. And the biggest challenge wasn't just skill set. It wasn't, let's teach you how to do social media. That's easy. The right. biggest challenge was at a big startup, uh, sorry, at a big company, you have the pre-meeting before the meeting to plan the meeting to have the meeting, and then you get six months of approvals. At a startup, you turn around your chair and say, hey, I think we should do this. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Done. <laughs> go, okay, so like, when do we meet about? No, that was the meeting. That was the meeting. <laughs> That's the hardest part to get people to adapt to. It is. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Do you enjoy, which one do you enjoy more? Like if you had to force rank. If somebody called you tomorrow and said, we'll pay you half a million dollars a year to be CTO at a Fortune 500 company, or we'll pay you half a million dollars a year to be CTO of a startup with 50 employees, which one would you take? Startup, hands down. Startups yeah. are so much more fun. I hate bureaucracy. Yeah. I hate the slowness of a big company. I hate the politics in a big company. Small <laughs> companies, I just feel like we're more nimble. We move faster. We do have politics. We do have some bureaucracy. I'm usually the person pushing for more process, but still we're on the other side of, of the hill there. And I'd rather be on that side of it. I always love it here at Riderflex. Somebody will say, well, do we have a policy for that? And I'll be like, nope, we're creating it right now. <laughs> we're creating it right now. Do we have a form? No, we don't. Let's make one. Let's make one. That is the fun part about startup, right? I mean, the scary part, of course, is cash flow and, you know, things that you have to worry about. A little bit more when you're in a small company, but it is fun and exciting to move quickly and make decisions and really have a major impact on the brand. That that is what's so fun for me. And in most cases, you're going to make less money, especially on the compensation side. Maybe down the road with an exit, if you have equity, you, you can cash out. But it, it's just a lot more fun. And life is life is short. I know because I'm getting older, and uh, if you're not having fun. Why the hell are you doing it? <laughs> right. Yeah. And what, it, tell me. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. E even though I've, I've taken those bets and I've been lucky that some have paid off, but even if you told me none of the equity will ever work and I know I'm taking a pay cut, money is not my most important driver. Yeah. It's so wonderful to hear people say that. And isn't that different from the eighties and nineties? I feel like it is back, back in the eighties and nineties. It was like, okay, what can my title be and how much money can I make? Or at least that's how it felt. Now, especially with millennials that I talk to, they are very good at, at wanting work-life balance. They want to enjoy experiences more than material things. I think they do a great job of that. And, and, I've, and I've gotten better at that as I've gotten older. Uh, I, I agree. The experience is what really matters at the, at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, if you live in a big giant house, 
that's worth $5 million and you've hated your career and you've hated your life, but then there's a guy that lives in the suburb in a little $400,000 home and he loved every minute of it. I'll take the guy with the 400 grand house. <laughs> and you know, when I recruit, because I'm going up against big tech companies, I can't match the compensation of Amazon, of Google, right. of even some well-funded startup that just raised another $50 million. So I'm not competing on, okay, I can match other offers you're going to get. I sell them on our mission, on our culture, on the development that I can offer them. And that's how I, I do pretty well. I can't say I win every case. <laughs> Self-selection that the people, if you're just after money, we're not the place for you anyway. Right. Tell me about your consulting. So are you, that's, so you're still teaching at MIT part-time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you're doing the consulting and then you're also, you also wrote the book and you're also doing speaking engagements. Is that correct? And I've got an app coming out. And you've, oh, you built an app. What's the app for? So I built two apps. When I did the book, I realized that as an author, my job isn't simply to sell you paper. I want to change how you think. And this is what all legitimate authors, nonfiction authors are about. Okay. But the problem is you read a book, you say, okay, well, this is some really great advice. And then you forget it all two weeks later. Kind of. And I that. said, okay, I want to address that. So I mm -hmm. put together my experience in technology, in media, in education, and I realized what we need to do is help people remember. Now, I'm the type of person who takes notes on my books. Most okay. people don't do that. Even then, I rarely look at my notes. So how can we help people remember their notes? Mm. And I came up with an idea that I was sure someone must have built this. I'll just license it. Right. They did. So filed a patent on this and then built an app with the Career Toolkit app. You download it. And what it does is a lot of the tips from the book you can use it one of two ways. Either, oh, I'm about to walk into a networking event. What were those tips? Pull out the app, open it up. Let me just look through those networking tips. Or you just have it that once a day at a time you set, it gives a push notification with one of the tips. Ooh. You open up and go, all oh, right, that was a good tip about leadership. Yeah, I remember that. Swipe, mm. done. You don't even have to open the app to get the push notification. You just have to do it once a month so we know you're still active. But that's it. And you say a little push, go, all right, that was something I want to remember. Done. Nice and easy. I does it work? Does that app work just on your book or for all books? So the Career Toolkit app works just for my book. But okay. then other authors said, we want to do this too. Yeah. And so we're coming out, we're recording this in April. In mid to late April, we should have the release of Brain Bump, which is a general app that will allow other authors podcasters, bloggers, and course instructors to put their content on the app. And then the user can go and say, I want to download this book, this podcast, and get those highlights, get those tips pushed out to me. And so we can support arbitrary content. Fa wonderful idea. I can't believe that that wasn't already built. <laughs> I'm it's one of those things like once you hear, you say, yes, this makes so much sense. And yet no one thought of it for years. How about that? And you have a patent on it, I guess. I didn't, I didn't, can you protect apps like that? Can somebody copy it? How does that work? I don't know. So the patent, I've done a lot of patents in my career, okay. which has been, once I learned how to do it, it's been a lot of fun and provides okay. good protection for startups. In mm -hmm. fact, one of my startups, we're in a patent litigation at the moment. Okay. In this case, the individual pieces, I push notifications, well, every app has that putting some content on the device, well, yeah, that's something other things have, but it's the process, it's a combination of them together mm. that had not been done. And mm. we're able to do that. Uh, that combination is patentable. I see. Okay. Very good. And when is it? It's called Brain Bump. And when is that launching? It should be launching, let's say April 18th. It will come out in beta. There'll be an okay. early version. There might be some tweaks. I want to set expectations. Okay. But Brain Bump on April 18th should have, uh, people can start downloading it from the Android and iPhone store, completely free for the app users. And we'll just continue to add more and more content. There's a limited amount to start, but over the coming months, we'll just keep adding content. 
How do you, how are you going to make money on that from the, from the authors? You're going to charge the authors of the books to, to be able to use the app and so, and not charge the user. Is that what you're going to do? Exactly. To, okay. to support the users, we're going to have the, the authors do it. And it's because most authors and podcasters already, they spend money on a marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. You're spending money to produce this podcast. Mm-hmm. So they want to get out there. They want to be heard and be seen. So they're willing to fund that if it gets them a larger reach. And for the user, great, you get free content. How about that? That's wonderful, Mark. Um, and by the way, by the time we launch this episode on the RiderFlex podcast, it'll probably be past your launch launch date for Brain Bump. So I'll make sure my partner, Scott, puts all that uh, in, in the uh, content uh, when we launch. So that'll be great. We can tie it all in. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, very so you building an app, wrote a book, teaching at MIT, doing some consulting. You're you're a busy guy. By the way, the book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You by Mark Hirschberg. And by the way, has its own website, the career toolkit, the career toolkitbook.com. Uh, and the book is also available on Amazon as well. It's got a four and a half star review and it uh, was, it was launched on Amazon. What is that? January 5th, 2021. Is that right? That's right. Just over a year ago. Okay. 999 for Kindle, 1450 for hardcover. Did you do an audio version? Well, 1450 Amazon really, the price goes up and down. So hopefully uh, it's uh, 1450. The list price is 2895. Uh, so I see that. Yeah, I see that moment, but Amazon, it, the price fluctuates almost every day. Interesting. Um, are you going to do an audio version or no? Maybe one day. I don't know if there's enough demand to justify the production cost of doing audio. And then you have challenges. What most people don't know with audiobooks, uh-huh. there's a number of things, including you don't control your pricing. Amazon sets the pricing of it. For all audiobooks? Yes. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Interesting. Well, you have the voice for it, though. I'm, so, I'm sure you've been told that before. You do have the voice for it. I have. And so I, I would like to do it, but it, it costs probably, a, it's going to be about $5,000 to do a proper audiobook. Interesting. So I say, will I get enough demand, you know, putting all that money up front, will I get enough sales from the audiobook, incremental mm. sales that aren't cannibalizing other sales to justify that cost? Okay. Did you, were you self-published or what'd you do uh, for the book? I, I wound up self-publishing okay. because when I looked, there are a few reasons. One, I wanted the control. Two, that app was scaring publishers. Some publishers were getting nervous when I said, I want to do an app. I see. Wait, you're, you're, you're going to cut our sales. And if you think about the app, I mentioned we're giving away the content free to people. Now, there's, I'm sure someone out there who's going to say, you know what, that $28.95, that $14.95, that's expensive for me. So if I can get it for free on the app, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to flip through all those tips and lose some sales. But I think there'll be enough other people who will say, this makes the book so much better, so much more enjoyable. It will also help word of mouth marketing. People are going to say, yes, I I agree. They'll remember the book more. So I think it will increase sales, but publishers, this is something new and they were getting a little nervous about. Well, you know, you could, I think the counter to that is you could say, well, podcast folks, they put out clips, free clips of the interview all the time on YouTube or whatever. You can be like, oh, I'm going to see this two minute clip. That's, and you don't have to listen to the whole thing, but users get hooked on the clips and then they listen to the whole thing. Very, very similar, right? Um, um, Give us the overview of the book real quick. Go for it. Give us the, give us the three minute elevator pitch of the career toolkit toolkit. Yeah, go for it. 10 chapters and three sections. And these are the skills companies say they want to see. The chapters are section one, careers. Chapter one, create and execute a career plan. Chapter two, working effectively. Things like managing your manager, understanding corporate culture. Chapter three, interviewing. As much from the hiring manager side as a candidate side. There's lots of stuff on the internet about how do you answer this interview question? Mm. We don't teach people how to interview other people, how to hire. It's a Mm. huge gap. I know mm-hmm. lots of executives who never learn this. Mm-hmm. Second section, leadership and management. <clears throat> what is the essence of leadership or the fundamentals? And then management, we look at people management and process management both. The third section, interpersonal dynamics. We cover 
communication, networking, negotiation, and ethics. How did a CTO physics guy get so interested in the human side of this? How did that happen? You, you, because you really strike me now as just talking to you. Like I don't think of you as like a tech guy, right? You, you, you're really speaking as somebody that's that's into the human element of of job interviews, career advice. How'd that happen? That was an intentional change because when I came out of MIT, I remember I said as a classic '80s nerd, and yeah. MIT certainly encourages that personality. Mm-hmm. I joked once to Bill Purdy, who's the creator of Big Bang Theory. I said, "I swear you had cameras set up in in my room at MIT, and you just recorded what I and my friends were doing because I would fit right into that show. I was just like those characters, same social skills or lack thereof." same thinking, Mm -hmm. same behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I realized early on, it it goes back to when I want to become a CTO, what did I need to to get there? I looked at other CTOs, I looked at the skills needed and realized, yeah, I'm I'm tripping up. I'm coming up short in some of these areas. So Mm -hmm. it was a very intentional effort to improve in these areas. And what I think happens, we talk about people, first, it's important to understand you can learn these skills. Yes, there are natural leaders. There are natural networkers. There are also natural golfers. There are people who are naturally good at math. That doesn't mean the rest of us, if we're not natural, can't learn. And what happens when you see someone who's a natural leader or a natural communicator, think, okay, I I don't have to work that hard and I'll get by. Similar to what I did at MIT. Okay, I don't have to study that hard. And then when I got to MIT, I got through MIT, but I could have done better. I could have done more. I didn't push myself. I didn't know how to improve. But when people say, okay, I'm going to really focus on this. I was a terrible dancer. I was so off time. I I was so bad at dancing. I would dance off time to techno. I couldn't hit one out of two beats. That's how bad I was. But I was very disciplined, very rigorous in my training for ballroom dancing. Mm -hmm. And even though I started really low by putting in the effort, I became one of the top. Same thing happened here. Other people said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good enough at leading. I'm good enough at communicating. I said, I'm, I'm down here, so I really have to work at it. And that's how it pushed me to get to the top because I keep working at it. But the other thing that happened is to understand it. For me, I have to break it down. I have to understand how to think about it. I have to understand the model. Richard Feynman famously said, if you want to understand something, you need to be able to explain it to someone else. And by doing that, by taking that process, now, not only am I better at, but I can help other people with it. Where did that help mentality come from? Is that from your mom or dad? What, what is driving you to want to give back and help others with their career? Where's that coming from? Some from my mom and dad, some innate. It's just who I am. Some mm-hmm. even, I'm, I'm Jewish. There is a philosophy in Judaism. Uh, tikkun olam, which is we have to leave the world better than we found it. Mm. So I think it's a number of factors together, but I love helping people. I do a lot of volunteer work with nonprofits. If I can help other people, just think about the incredible impact if all of us did this, we'd have on the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Okay. Very good. Appreciate you giving us that, that overview of the book and, and talking about the app as well. By the way, Mark is also, of course, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can connect with him there. Um, Mark, I want to ask you career advice wise for anybody listening that wants to be a CTO, an aspiring CTO. Let's say they're, uh, I don't know, maybe they're at the uh, manager level or whatever. Uh, Maybe they're in their twenties, mid twenties, late twenties, something like that. And they want to be a CTO someday. They're listening to this episode. What would you tell them? I know we could do, by the way, I know we could do like an entire episode on that question, but what would you tell them today? You need a plan. No matter where you are, if you want to go somewhere else, you need to have a plan because otherwise you're aimlessly wandering. So create and execute on a plan. And the plan is basically, here's that destination. Here's what I need to get there. Here's where I am today. There's probably a gap, a skills gap, an experience gap. How do you fill that gap? Often it's not going to be one single step. 
if you want to manage a team of 100 people and you've never managed before, that, that's not how you start. But if you've managed a team of 80 people, they'll say, okay, yeah, we think you can manage 100. Well, you can't go from zero to 80. You probably need to have managed a team of 50 and before that a team of 25. Along the way, it starts by saying, let me start managing a team of five people. Mm. Either you get promoted in your company or you get the opportunity or someone just gives you that chance. Okay, you're managing five people. If you do it well, you can take that next step. And I, I just picked managing size because it's very easy to quantitatively show it. But if, for all the skills and experience, you're going to figure out what those steps are to get to the end. And if you think back to your projects at work, when you have a two-year project, say, well, we need to be here in two years. What do you do? You have those milestones along the way. Where do we need to be at the end of the quarter? What do we do the next quarter? Same thing, create that plan. And that's what you need to do for your career. How about job interviewing? You've uh, interviewed lots of people, hired lots of people. I mean, you know, your, your, your book is, is about career. What are the biggest mistakes that you see in candidates when they're interviewing right now, today, in this environment? How people present themselves. I don't just mean how, how you dress. People focus on the content. It goes back to how we started this conversation. And content, okay, I'm a smart guy. I know what I'm doing. Ask me questions. I'll give you good answers. But they don't think about how they come across. Now, mm. that can be physical. It could be, in some cases, poor dress. That's less of an issue these days. It could be things like doing a Zoom interview and you are in shadow or there's a bunch right. of distracting things behind you. But also even just how you convey yourself. Mm. It's how you come across. When I interview, I'm not just looking for your answer. I'm looking at how you're doing it. I'm looking at your language. I'm looking at the structure of your answers. Mm -hmm. People don't think about this. And so they're signaling things good and bad unintentionally. It's part of what I talk about in the book. So we need to be more intentional with what we're conveying, not just the words, but everything else that comes with it. People think that if I, some people think, well, if I work really hard and I'm smart, I don't have to worry about my people skills or my communication skills or my style or my personality. <laughs> uh, and I always encourage them. I was like, no, actually, here's the deal. As long as human beings are working with other human beings, you do have to worry about those things. Now, if we all start working with robots someday, okay, maybe it's going to be different. But as long as humans are interacting with humans, the communication and all that and, and the body language and the eye contact and the attitude, it, it does matter. I don't care how smart you are, how hard you work. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> Here's the analogy I used to open the book. This comes from my friend, Charles Leiserson, who's a professor I taught with at MIT. We're going to do a little bit of middle school math here. I want you to imagine a rectangle that's four by 10. And we need to increase one of the sides by two units to maximize the area. Now, if you need to pause the podcast, feel free to do so. Right, now that you know, <laughs> you'll realize the answer is going from four to six, gives us 60 units. The other way, it's 48. Okay, great. What does this have to do with anything with our careers? We all have long sides and short sides. Mm. What we've done, when we put those two units on the short side, it gets amplified by that long side. If I put on the long side, it only gets amplified by the short side. Now, we're more than two sides. We're going to use two for this analogy. So mm -hmm. imagine I'm very long technically. Mm -hmm. One of those people might be a genius, really technically capable, but a terrible communicator. Discombobulated, uses too much technical jargon. Other people can't follow him or her. Mm -hmm. And so even though you're brilliant, you're this long, thin rectangle. Your area is pretty small. Now, we have to continue to develop our skills, particularly in tech, or most of us are disciplined. If you don't, you get outdated. So work on that long side. But putting a little bit of effort on that short side, going from four to six, getting better at communicating in this example. And we're not talking about now you can be on the TED Talk stage. We're not talking about you're a world famous communications <laughs> expert, but just going from, oh my God, you're horrible to okay, I can, I can follow it. It's not painful to talk to you. All those brilliant ideas, that long side becomes so much more effective. Mm. So all of us need to recognize we have short sides 
and putting just a little bit of effort, 10, 20 hours a year on some of those short sides, it's going to give us a massive return on investment. That is really good stuff, Mark. And I would just emphasize that the long side is what most software engineers and tech people have, right? They're smart, they're capable, most of them work really hard, but damn, talking to them is painful. <laughs> and they just cannot communicate very well. And, and even worse, you know, uh, and most recruiters can relate to this, even worse, because tech folks and, and people that can write code and software engineers and data scientists, because they're in such high demand, from a recruiting perspective, it makes their attitude and their cockiness even worse because they feel like they don't have to worry about the people's skills because they're in such high demand, right? <laughs> and I just want to encourage the listeners, you know, if you are one of those folks, just if you'll just work on the short side, like Mark said, and, and develop your people skills and your communication skills just a little bit, it will make you so much more valuable. And push you probably into a leadership role. Great advice, Mark. Really great advice. I want to ask you this. I know we're getting short on time here, but I want to ask you something uh, really quick, kind of outside the lines, so to speak. When it comes to social media for an executive or, any, or an author or anybody that's marketing their personal brand, what are your thoughts about speaking out on topics on social media? Uh, you know, for example, I noticed you did a post about the Will Smith thing on your LinkedIn. Um, I guess two-part question. What are your thoughts about folks like you taking sides or speaking out on topics on social media? That's part one of the question. And part two is, should Will Smith have slapped Chris Rock? <laughs> so the so first part, I started doing social media because as an author, you have to do that. It's you part to. of how you promote yourself. You have to. Yep. I've never done much before as on Facebook and LinkedIn just for friends. Mm -hmm. Now I do public posts. Yep. And I do believe we have to get into relevant issues. Now, I don't bother with, this is, this is a little dated, I don't bother with, is it a blue or gold dress? I don't wade into that publicly. I don't wade into whatever, I don't know what Kardashians are doing or random <laughs> things like that. It's not relevant. I talk about professional skills. I talk about careers. I talk about ethics. And if things touch upon those topics, mm. I will get into it. Now, sometimes we can use real world examples. And so why I wrote about Will Smith is the post I have today, the day we're recording, we saw, okay, he slapped, everyone said, that's bad. Other people came out and said, hey, wait a second. If you look for years, yeah, that's bad, but we've had people like Harvey Weinstein were in the academy for years and no one spoke up and we've had far worse. Mm. And they're right. We mm -hmm. have had far worse, we didn't speak up. I said, why are we making a big deal out of it? And the topic of this post is saying, what's happened, it's not that we have this different, you know, oh, we, we ignored that and so we should ignore this. It's that we've changed the bar. We've said, this is no longer acceptable. If you think back to when we were younger, a man in the 80s could say to a woman, some sexual comment in the office and yes. brush it off. Yep. Oh, boys will be boys. And now we said, no, this is not acceptable. We have changed standards. The fact that we didn't address it back then doesn't mean we shouldn't now. And mm. the fact that we are standing up to this, even though there is far worse, even though there's a war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. we'd love to stop Putin. We, you and I, can't stop Putin. We have mm -hmm. to wait for the nation states to do it. Mm -hmm. But we can, in some ways, stop Will Smith. We can put that social pressure on. And we can say, this behavior won't be tolerated. And that's important. It represents a really significant change in society where we're saying, no, mm -hmm. this, this is no longer acceptable. And I think this matters to society, to our office places. And this really is important. And it ties back to what I do talk about. It's not just, ooh, let's talk about celebrities and what they're doing. <laughs> I really don't care. What about the virtue signaling, as they call it, and people that uh, jump on topics like Ukraine? We'll use that one, for example. 
where, and I'm sure you've seen this, right? You know, people will post something about Ukraine or they'll put their flag up. And meanwhile, they don't, they don't even know where Ukraine is on the map, right? They, you know, <laughs> they don't know anything that's going on. And they're just, you know, posting something to get likes and talk about it. To talk. What are your, I guess, two-part question. What are your thoughts about this virtue signaling just to get likes when they don't even know what's going on? So that's part one of the question. Part two is, is are, are you fascinated at how the country will jump on a social media topic when there's so many other things going on? And and the reason I ask that, I've had several people in the podcast that are involved around the world with starving children or countries that don't have fresh water and all kinds of other atrocities across the planet that nobody talks about. And suddenly the Ukraine is, everybody's putting up their Ukraine flags. And by the way, I'm not, for the listeners, I'm not slamming you if you put the Ukraine planet flag up. That's not my point. My point is it's, I'm just fascinated how we jump on this. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah, there's there's a hundred other places around the planet that are in desperate need. How do we pick, why is this one the, the winner today? Uh, so anyway, I was rambling there for a little bit, but I wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, and I, I've never put up the flag or the badge or the stand with whoever, even when it's been with groups that are okay. that I'm part of, because I, I don't jump on those trends. I also think we... The problem with social media is it's limited to 140 characters, whatever the Twitter limit used to be. And yeah, I know that limit's gone on Facebook. You don't have that limit. Yeah. But these are complex issues. Yes. They're not things you can solve in a line or two. <laughs> so you, the social media post I have references the blog post I wrote about mm. where I have a thousand words that goes into it. We could easily spend thousands of more words even getting into some of the subtleties and some mm -hmm. of what's happening. And you could say, well, is it acceptable for Chris Rock to make fun of someone for their, uh, you know, for a disease? We can talk about the fact that in Hollywood, what do we do? We judge people based on their looks. The fact that Chris Helmsworth gets these starring roles is because he has these genes that makes him look really good. He was born that way. Someone else who has genes that makes them look not so good or puts them in a wheelchair, yeah. is it the other side of the coin? Do we, do we only go one way or another? And we can get into all sorts of subtleties with this. Mm -hmm. It's just that I definitely can't do it in a sentence or two, right. but the nature of social media is do it quick, do it fast, do it often. You get rewarded for that. You get rewarded, right? Yeah, I think that's what happens. People people love to be rewarded. People love to feel good. They love to feel part of the tribe. They want to feel like, oh, I'm part of this group. <laughs> Everybody wants to hang out. You know, they want to hang out with wherever. Oh, the party's over here. Let's hang out over here with these guys. There's a lot of that going on. I know I'm bumping you up here at the end of our time. I apologize. I could, I could keep going. Uh, just one more time for the listeners. Mark Hirschberg, thank you, sir, for being on the podcast. I want to tell the listeners one more time thecareertoolkitbook.com. Uh, and you can also find uh, Mark uh, on LinkedIn as well. Mark, thank you for being on the Rider Flex show. I really appreciate it, sir. Thanks for having me on.